don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. Welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. Uh, to close out the week, I've got uh, another fun one. These I really love, and not only that, I think they're incredibly important, particularly for newcomers in this space who don't know the history of the cypherpunks and all the pieces of, uh, all the precursors to what made the Bitcoin system possible. And um, so we're closing out the Genesis Files series today. And that is Aaron Von Wertham's excellent series at BitcoinMagazine.com. And this will be part three. Parts one and two are episodes of uh, 58 and 95 of this podcast, respectively. Um, And uh, I will be sure to link to those. But I'll also uh, link to the actual Bitcoin Magazine articles. And I definitely encourage you to actually go to the bitcoinmagazine.com links to check out the articles because they're just packed full of links to um, other works like the cypherpunk mailing list and like specific sources for a lot of this stuff other projects that are being worked on um, other things done by each of these people and backing up I mean just there's so many excellent things to dig into with this. I mean, I think just this article alone has like 30 odd links. I I can't even, I don't even know. Um, After I read it, I was just kind of blown away. And I tried to go through a lot of these things to kind of, you know, despite the fact that Aaron Von Wertham is one of the most trustworthy journalists, I think in this space, um, I still like to dig through sources and just kind of get, um, get a broader image, but it's just, it's so much fun. There's so much stuff here. So um, I definitely encourage you, don't miss out. If you get the opportunity to sit down and dig through some of this stuff, check out all three of these on bitcoinmagazine.com and see where all of the pieces of these articles actually came from. Check out the sources. There's some gold underneath there, and it's just too much to cover in a podcast episode. Um, So uh, with that, um, I do want to say one other thing before we get started is Everybody, uh, don't miss Monday's episode. I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun, and I'm really excited about it. Um, I think y'all are going to enjoy it. Um, and uh, so that's just a little uh, tidbit there. And we will jump in to today's episode. The read is The Genesis Files. If Bitcoin had a first draft, Way Dies B Money was it. All cypherpunks value privacy. It's basically the founding principle of the collective of cryptographers, academics, developers, and activists grouped around the 1990s mailing list by the same name. But few put it in practice like Wei Dai does. Once described as an intensely private computer engineer by the New York Times, not many personal details are known about the man who, two decades ago, dreamed up an electronic cash system intriguingly similar to Bitcoin. This lack of personal details is made up for by Wei Dai's work and proliferation of ideas. A talented cryptographer, Dai created and still maintains Crypto++, 
a C++ library for cryptographic algorithms. Dai is also, to this day, active on rationality forums like Less Wrong, where he philosophizes on such topics as artificial intelligence, ethics, epistemology, and more. His insights earned him the praise of well-known AI researcher Eliza Yudkowsky and repeated invitations to speak at his Machine Intelligence Research Institute, or MIRI, previously known as the Singularity Institute. Dai's interest in philosophy and politics is nothing new. Back in the 1990s, as a young bachelor student in computer science at Washington University, his curiosity led him to the writings of Timothy May, one of the founding fathers of the cypherpunk movement. Dai was inspired by the crypto-anarchy May advocated, the brand new ideology prevalent amongst cypherpunks based on the conviction that cryptography and software could provide and safeguard political and economic freedom better than any system of government would. Quote, I am fascinated by Tim May's crypto-anarchy, Dai wrote in 1998. Unlike the communities traditionally associated with the word anarchy, in a crypto-anarchy, the government is not temporarily destroyed, but permanently forbidden and permanently unnecessary. It's a community where the threat of violence is important because violence is impossible, and violence is impossible because its participants cannot be linked to their true names or physical locations, end quote. By the mid-1990s, Dai engaged in discussions on various topics on the cypherpunk's mailing list, such as digital reputation systems, game theory, privacy and anonymity in digital cash systems. Perhaps more importantly, Dai made a number of proposals to further the cypherpunk cause, including trusted timestamping, an encrypted TCP tunneler, a secure file-sharing system, and more. It garnered him a reputation as a prolific contributor to the cypherpunk community. Though, even back then, no one knew much about him personally. Not even whether Dai was male or female, Timothy May recently said. But Dai would become best known for an idea he casually announced in November of 1998, just after graduating from university. Quote, Efficient cooperation requires a medium of exchange, money, and a way to enforce contracts, Dai explained. The protocol proposed in this article allows untraceable, pseudonymous entities to cooperate with each other more efficiently by providing them with a medium of exchange and a method of enforcing contracts. I hope this is a step toward making crypto-anarchy a practical as well as theoretical possibility." End quote. He called his proposal B-Money. B-Money. Typical digital money systems use a central ledger to keep track of account balances. Whether it's a central bank, a commercial bank, Visa, or any other payment provider, a centrally controlled database somewhere tracks who owns what. The problem with this solution from Dai's and the crypto-anarchist perspective is that it ultimately lets governments control the flow of money through regulation, while participants in the system are usually required to identify themselves. Quote, My motivation for B-Money was to enable online economies that are purely voluntary, ones that couldn't be taxed 
or regulated through the threat of force, end quote, he later explained. So Dye came up with an alternative solution, or really two alternative solutions. In the first solution, instead of a central entity controlling the ledger, all participants maintain separate copies of the same ledger. Anytime a new transaction is made, everyone updates their records. These ledgers, furthermore, would consist of public keys with amounts attached to them, no real names. This decentralized approach would prevent any single entity from blocking transactions while offering a level of privacy to all users. As a quick example, let's say Alice and Bob are B-Money users. They both have a public key. Alice has public key A, and Bob has public key B, for which they both control their unique private keys. And as recorded in the ledgers maintained by all users, both their public keys hold B-Money units, let's say three units each. If Bob wants to receive two B-Money units from Alice because he's selling her a product, he sends her his public key, B. Assuming Alice wants to buy the product, she then creates a transaction in the form of a message, to B-Money, from A to B. Next, she signs this message with her private key corresponding to A. The message in the cryptographic signature is then sent to all B-Money users. The signed message proves to all B-Money users that the rightful owner of A wants to send two B-Money units to B. Everyone, therefore, updates their ledgers, now attributing a total of one B-Money unit to A and a total of five B-Money units to B, without learning that Alice or Bob control either. If this solution sounds familiar, it should. It's roughly how, ten years later, Satoshi Nakamoto designed Bitcoin. B-Money version 2 Dai considered his first B-Money solution impractical, however, quote, because it makes heavy use of a synchronous and unjammable anonymous broadcast channel, he explained in his proposal. Put differently, the first B-Money proposal didn't solve the double spending problem. Alice could send two B-Money units to both Bob's B and to Carol's C at the same time, transmitting these transactions to different parts of the network. Both Bob and Carol would give Alice a product in return, only to later find out that half of the network won't acknowledge their new balances. That's why Dai came up with a second B-Money solution, all in the same proposal. In this version, not everyone maintains a version of that ledger. Instead, the system would consist of two types of users, regular users and, quote, servers. Only the servers, linked through a Usenet-style broadcast network, would maintain the B-Money ledgers. To verify that a transaction went through like it should, regular users, like Bob and Carol, would have to verify it with a random subset of these servers. In case of a conflict, Bob and Carol would presumably reject the transaction from Alice and not sell her anything. While not detailed in the proposal, anyone would probably have been able to become a server, but, quote, each server is required to deposit a certain amount of money in a special account to be used as potential fines or rewards for proof of misconduct, Dai proposed. The servers should also periodically publish and cryptographically commit to ownership databases. Quote, each participant should verify that his own account balances are correct 
and that the sum of the account balances is not greater than the total amount of money created. Die envisioned. This prevents the servers, even in total collusion, from permanently and costlessly expanding the money supply. End quote. If this sounds somewhat familiar as well, that's no wonder either. Dai's second B-Money proposal loosely resembles what would today be called a proof-of-stake system. To boot, Dai added an early version of a smart contract solution to his proposals. These types of smart contracts most closely resemble a mixture of a proof-of-stake system and an arbitration system, where both parties to a contract and an arbitrator must all deposit funds in a special account. Curiously, for modern standards, however, these contracts did not have a dispute resolution system encoded. Instead, it was possible that, in case of disputes, different users or servers would adjust their own ledgers differently, in effect leaving the state of ledgers on the network out of consensus. Presumably, the potential penalties would make the cost of cheating too high to risk it. Monetary Policy Yet, where B-Money would have perhaps differed most sharply from Bitcoin was Dai's proposed monetary policy. Bitcoin's monetary policy is, of course, very straightforward. To bring coins in circulation, it initially issued 50 new Bitcoins per block, a number which has since dropped to 12.5. This number will continue to decrease over time until some hundred years from now, the total amount of Bitcoin issued caps out at slightly below 21 million. Whether or not such a monetary policy is ideal has been a subject of debate, but one thing is clear. So far, it has not produced a stable coin value. In contrast, a stable coin value was explicitly part of Dai's vision. To achieve this, the value of B-Money was to be coupled to the value of a theoretical basket of goods. For example, 100 B-Money units would be worth one basket of goods. This should give B-Money a stable value, at least in relation to this basket of goods. The same 100 B-Money units would buy the same basket of goods in the past, in the present, and in the future. To issue new coins, users were to determine what a basket of goods would cost relative to a solution to a computational problem, a quote, proof of work. If, for example, a basket of goods should cost $80 at a specific point in time, it would have to be matched by a proof of work that would on average cost $80 to produce. If 10 years later the same basket of goods were to cost $120, the same 100 units would have to be matched with a proof of work that cost $120 to produce. Using this indicator, the first person to produce a valid proof of work would be credited 100 new B-Money by all users or the servers. Therefore, no one would be particularly incentivized to produce proofs of work unless they intended to use B-Money, limiting inflation to the growth of the, quote, B-Money economy. Alternatively, in an appendix to his proposal, Dai suggested that money creation could be realized through an auction. Either all users, first protocol, or the server's second protocol, would first have to determine an optimal increase of the monetary base. Then, if this ideal increase were to be established at 500 B-Money units, for example, an auction would determine who should create these 500 units, whoever was willing and able to provide the most proof of work for it. Bitcoin B-Money was never implemented. It couldn't have been. Quote, 
B-Money wasn't a complete practical design yet. Dai acknowledged in a less wrong forum thread a couple of years ago. What's more, Dai did not expect B-Money to take off in a big way, even if it was implemented. Quote, I think B-Money will at most be a niche currency or contract enforcement mechanism, serving those who don't want to or can't use government-sponsored ones, he explained in an email following his announcement on the Cypherpunks mailing list. Indeed, several of B-Money's problems remained unsolved or at least underspecified. Perhaps most importantly, its consensus model was not very robust, as best shown by Dai's proposed smart contract solution. It has since also been found that proof-of-stake systems introduce new challenges that Dai may not have foreseen. For example, it's not clear how, quote, misconduct can be objectively established. And that doesn't even get into the more nuanced problems of the proposal, such as a lack of privacy due to traceability of funds or potential coin issuance, mining centralization. Indeed, some of these problems are still not solved for Bitcoin today. Dai, who, after proposing B-Money, went on to work for Terra Sciences and Microsoft, and may have retired early on since then, would not stick around to solve these problems. Quote, I didn't continue to work on the design because I had actually grown somewhat disillusioned with crypto anarchy by the time I finished writing up B-Money. Dai later explained on Less Wrong. He reiterated, I didn't foresee that a system like it, once implemented, could attract so much attention and use beyond a small group of hardcore cypherpunks, end quote. Yet, Dai's proposal was not forgotten. B-Money ended up as the first reference in the Bitcoin white paper. Still, as similar as B-Money and Bitcoin's designs may be, it's possible that Satoshi Nakamoto was not inspired by Dai's idea at all. Dai himself believes that Bitcoin's inventor came up with the idea independently. Shortly before publishing the Bitcoin white paper, Hashcash inventor Dr. Adam Back directed Satoshi Nakamoto to Dai's work, making Dai one of few people Bitcoin's inventor personally reached out to before publishing his white paper. But Dai did not respond to Satoshi's email. In retrospect, he wished he had. Unsurprisingly, Dai questions Bitcoin's coin generation model. Quote, I would consider Bitcoin to have failed with regard to its monetary policy because the policy uses high price volatility which imposes a heavy cost on its users who have to either take undesirable risks or engage in costly hedging in order to use the currency. He wrote on Less Wrong, One possible impact of Bitcoin might be that due to its deficient monetary policy and associated price volatility, it can't grow to very large scales. And by taking over the cryptocurrency niche, it has precluded a future where a cryptocurrency does grow to very large scales. End quote. He added, This may have been partially my fault, because when Satoshi wrote to me asking for comments on his draft paper, I never got back to him. Otherwise, perhaps, I could have dissuaded him or them from the fixed supply of money idea. End quote. This is the third installment in Bitcoin Magazine's The Genesis Files series. The first two articles covered Dr. David Chalm's eCash and Dr. Adam Back's Hashcash. For more from Wei Dai, 
visit weidai.com. That's W-E-I-D-A-I.com. And there we have it. Um, closing out the Genesis files. I guess I say that um, just because uh, maybe it was mentioned in part two that this was a three-part series, but I actually don't really know for certain if there will not be more Genesis files to come. So we will we will see as we move forward if Aaron and Bitcoin Magazine in general um, decides to continue this series, uh, you know, going through history lessons of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general. So uh, this one was another good one, as always. Thank you, Aaron Von Wertham. Excellent piece, as usual. And uh, I find it interesting that Dai actually was against the uh, hard money, um, like fixed supply idea. And I think, I think it comes with a desire. I think it's a faulty assumption. I think it's actually an economic fallacy that the price has to be involatile for it to work. Because I think the only way to um, solve volatility of something, particularly like a money, um, something that has that monetary premium, is for it to be widely adopted. I don't think there is any way because it's its monetary premium is exactly what gives it its um, uh, its its value. Essentially, it's going to swing massively based on the amount of value put into that economy, and trying to create some sort of a response mechanism that adjusts so wildly. I mean, think about it with the volatility that we see in the price because of the lack of liquidity and the barriers between markets, like arbitrage between you know the Chinese and the American markets, so on and so forth, that amount of volatility in the price would have to be made up for in some balancing mechanism of the issuance of the currency. And considering how quickly the... Um, uh, A, how difficult it is to get all the markets in consensus around you know what the price is and you know where uh, if somebody's buying in China to get the price to respond quickly in America and vice versa um, and in addition the the huge swings that we see in overestimating the price and then underestimating the price the number of times Bitcoin is so overbought and or um, oversold suggest that this mechanism would, have to take in more information than makes any reasonable sense from a set of essentially another set of trusted third parties like whatever it be oracles or you know some bag of goods which you know who holds the bag of goods how do you attach it to a bag of goods you run into the exact same problem that you're starting with in trying to uh, create an independent money, and now you're having to create an independent third party to a third party piece, a source of information to price this thing against and to issue new currency against, which is just an additional attack vector. So, I think the idea that you can have a low liquidity, small niche art, uh, uh, industry or um, uh, asset that does not respond to large fluctuations of capital is a fallacy and and I think it's a it's a problem that not only isn't really addressable in any meaningful sense it's also one that introduces an attack vector and becomes its own 
vulnerability. I think it would it would ruin the other properties of the currency in order to try to focus so deeply on that, tackling that task. And you'll notice that anything, any uh, impactful or new technology um, that comes in the space, I mean, look at look at the history of petroleum, the history of the railroads, like you see this exact same thing over and over. Until the technology is ubiquitous, you have unbelievable volatility, and there's not really any way around it. And uh, many may not realize this, but the volatility of the Bitcoin price has actually been declining for pretty much its entire lifespan. So even with the most recent hype bubble, um, you can easily see that it was far more tempered and gradual than the previous bubbles. In fact, I actually thought and you know had conversations that I thought we were going to go within a couple of days of where we did hit the all-time high. I thought we were going to 30K before actually finding a top in the market, specifically because I was accounting for the fact that volatility had not come anywhere near the previous bubbles. I was expecting at some point to see like a 100% move in around 24 to 48 hours, not accounting for the fact that the growth of the market and the higher liquidity and exposure would dampen that indicator significantly. Volatility measurement actually peaked in early 2018 at roughly half what we saw in 2013 and 14 um, during their hype cycles. So we did not really come anywhere near the previous volatility that we've seen during these bubbles. Um, so, uh, regardless of that, I think uh, Wei Dai is really misunderstanding the major economic and security reasonings of a strictly fixed uh, monetary supply. The sense of taming the price mechanism is a dead-end task, and not only would I consider it deeply undesirable, we'd essentially be trying to preempt the time preference from being priced into the Bitcoin markets. So, the... The, the contrast between the long-term and short-term mindset, uh, the consequences of a sound and unsound money, respectively, are actually fundamental to the sustainability of markets and uh, the, the volatility specifically counters the short-term imbalances. So putting in another layer of subjectivity into the protocol that is trying to source pricing on a basket of goods or introducing some political auctioning or voting mechanism for creating new tokens is actually putting the cart before the horse, in, 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 so to speak. The price is your most reliable and independent market indicator, even with its limitations. So it'd be similar to uh, maybe trying to, trying to get a group of experts together to assess data from like manufacturing, production, shipping, labor, and all the different markets associated with the price of bread in order to figure out how much bread we should produce in order to keep the price from raising or lowering. Well, that's exactly what the price is there to do. The price of bread goes up against the factors of production and more people produce it. So when it drops, the production declines. That is literally the entire purpose of the price mechanism to respond to vastly more data and realities in the market, whether we can even be cognizant of them. So no one can or has, or it's just impossible to know the billions of sources of information that cooperate and interact to create a market price. So not only do I think the idea of a stable price issuance like uh, uh, 
dynamic issuance protocol is undesirable and impossible to boot, I think it would also be the single largest vulnerability in the protocol to cheating and centralized manipulation. I think Satoshi actually made the absolute right decision in making as much as possible the monetary policy in particular entirely independent from any subjective human decision-making process. So without it being hard-coded in a accept-it-or-don't part of the protocol, I, I truly don't think Bitcoin could survive in the long term. Um, but with that, uh, I hope you guys liked that one. I'm, I have absolutely loved the Genesis File series. And another, as always, huge thank you to Aaron Von Wertham and his unbelievably good writing and uh, competence in Bitcoin journalism, which unfortunately journalism in general is severely lacking in. And another big thank you to BitcoinMagazine.com for um, their constant uh, vigilance in maintaining a, a serious front of uh, real journalism. So I super appreciate these guys. I constantly use them as a resource, and I absolutely encourage you guys to, to as well. Um, check out Aaron Von Wertham. I will tag both him and Bitcoin Magazine in the post, and I will link to all three uh, parts of the Genesis Files series. All right, with that, I want to again mention, uh, do not miss episode uh, 100 and, what will this be, 8? The next one? Um, yeah, this is 107, so don't miss episode 108. That will be Monday's episode. I think we have got a really fun one lined up, and I really enjoyed it. So, yes, I hope you guys are excited as I am. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at the Crypto Economy and Medium as well to stay on top of it. Um, I will be sure to post it in all of the places. And, uh, of course, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Leave me some feedback. And if you would like to support the show, um, please feel free to donate. I will add my address um, and QR code up on the post as always. So thank you guys so much. I hope everybody has a wonderful weekend and I will catch you all back here on Monday with an excellent episode of the Crypto Economy Podcast. All right, guys, take it easy. Mm-hmm.